Welcome to the Final Girls Podcast. This is Anna, co-founder of the Final Girls Collective and your podcast host. If you're new to the podcast, welcome. Every season, we explore the intersections of horror film and feminism, looking at a particular trope in depth and exploring how it's been presented throughout horror film history. We're going to be spending the next few months talking about the most elegant of movie monsters, the vampire. In each episode, I'll be joined by a special guest to dive deep into a vampire movie or two. We discuss the films in detail, sometimes make bad jokes, and do our best to contextualize them and to think about what works and what doesn't. In today's episode, we're diving into two 1970s entries into the very prolific subgenre of lesbian vampire films. Firstly, we discuss the very unique and extremely fabulous film Daughters of Darkness, which reinvents the legend of the Countess Elizabeth Bathory as a stylish and exquisitely shot horror film. If you couldn't tell, I really like it. Harry Cummel's film focuses on two newlyweds, Stefan and Valerie, who spend their honeymoon at a posh seaside hotel where they run into a mysterious duo, the Countess Bathory and her young protege, Ilona. In the second part of the episode, we'll be discussing The Blood Spattered Bride, an early film by Spanish director Vicente Aranda, which reinvents the Carmilla story, updating it with intense violence, a lot of nudity, and a whole lot more politics. The film also focuses on a pair of newlyweds who discover that the strange woman who they find on the beach is actually a 200-year-old reincarnated killer. I'm joined in this episode by the editor-in-chief of Diabolique magazine, author and film critic Kat Ellinger, who has also just released a book all about Daughters of Darkness, and I'll make sure to link to it in the show notes. This season is made possible with the support of Arrow Video, who bring you the very best in cult, horror, and genre films, specializing in deluxe, definitive home entertainment editions with uncut versions, newly commissioned artwork, and specially created extras. Their collection now spans more than 500 physical releases, and throughout the season, we'll be recommending a film from their vast collection. This week, our pick is the extremely weird and extremely watchable Southland Tales, the follow-up to Donnie Darko by director Richard Kelly. It explores deep existential questions through the lens of 1980s nostalgia, and it also starts to rock, so what more do you want from it? If you're new to the podcast, please know that we discuss the films in detail from the very beginning. If you're averse to any discussion of a film before you watch it, consider this your spoiler warning. There is a good chunk of the conversation about Daughters of Darkness before we go into spoiler territory, and I'll leave the timestamp in the show notes if you want to jump ahead. If you don't really mind spoilers, please enjoy a discussion about these two 70s vampire gems. Kat, thank you so much for coming back into the podcast to talk about some female 70s vampires with me. Hello, my favorite subject. (laughs) So we're going to be talking about two female gothic lesbian vampire movies today. And let's begin with Daughters of Darkness from 1971. Silly tales about those chased away by garlic and vampires shrinking from crosses. He kidnapped young girls and kept them chained to give blood. Blood for her to bathe in and drink. And she bit them everywhere. No. And then she pushed white hot brokers into their faces. And when they parted their lips to scream, she shoved the flaming rod up into their mouth. Help it. Blood. Beautiful. Let's go. Stop it. 
I'm so obsessed with it. Well, I was, I mean, usually I'd begin with, do you like this film? But given that you've written an entire book on it and your podcast is named after the film, I'm going to take that as you do like it. Yes, just a, just a tad. A little little bit. Just a tad. (laughs) But tell me, when did you first see Daughters of Darkness and, and what do you love about it so much? Um. I'm not exactly sure when I first saw this. I got asked this on another podcast mm. that did about the film, actually. I mean, it was a while ago, and it came in my, like, exploration into, you know, just general Euro cult. But it really stood out to me as just completely different to most of the other films that I'd seen before, uh, for reasons that we'll probably explore. And I grew up on Hammer Horror, and we've discussed that when I came on before. So, and I love vampires are like my genre. Like, mm-hmm. you know, I love a bit of Frankenstein and some of the other monsters. But for me, it's always been vampires. And those first vampires started off as the Hammer vampires. And I was really into the Ingrid Pitt films, especially. Because I just thought, you know, just to see a female monster was just so mind-blowing and twins of evil was one of my favorites the hammer ones but when i saw daughters of darkness it's so unique it's so different it's so subversive in the way that it plays with vampire lore and tradition it's not even fully a horror film i'd say it's more of a fantastique mm-hmm. film Mm-hmm. which is something that we generally don't have in British Gothic. It's more of a European, uh, mainland Europe thing. Uh, we still are European. <laughs> Let's just get that. <laughs> but, you know, it's more, of a, it's more of a tradition in France, for example. And so you see a lot of the French vampire films like Jean Rollins, for example, are very fantastique. And uh, what I mean by fantastique is... I explain this in my book and there's this wonderful author who wrote a whole book on the tradition of the fantastic called Todoroff and he explained it as the moment of hesitation so you know normally in a vampire film you'll get people like it's accepted that vampires are a thing or you might get somebody who doesn't really believe in them but then they kind of see something and they're like oh yeah there's that like this is a monster this is like a supernatural thing and it's very clear cut you have signifiers like fangs mm-hmm. and crosses and you know all the things that they stick in so you know this is a monster whereas in the fantastic you're never quite sure and i think this was this is like one of the best fantastic horror films to have been made in in all of time Mm -hmm. but it really stands out in that whole 70s canon 
I'm really attracted to the Carmina adaptations anyway and the mm-hmm. lesbian vampire adaptations. But even within that canon, there's just something about it that really, really stands out is different i think because of dolphin serig because mm-hmm. it hasn't got fangs it hasn't got all the usual tropes it's just completely utterly different to anything else that you'll ever see mm. and i think it's weird because people often call it an art house film and it does have certain trappings of an art house film but when director harry kummel made it it was to make an exploitation uh, sex film mm-hmm. he wanted to be shocking he was pissed off with the belgian critic society thought they were elitist um <laughs> and <laughs> so he set out to make a sleazy film but because he's so unique mm. like he's just such a unique talent um it didn't turn out like that it, at all I think it's just yeah I think it's one of those films people come to it and then they're just like whoa like what is that and now with the new restoration as well meeting Mm. more and more people all the time you've just come to it and I think it's wonderful because it just you know I don't think I've ever met anybody that said they don't like it it's it's astonishing I have to admit this was probably the first this is the first time that I've seen it I'd heard about it for for years and years and just never kind of got to it and my expectation of it was for it to be a sort of sleazy, Euro-trashy kind of lesbian vampire film. And it was nothing like that. I don't even know what it was. It it looked almost like a lost Fassbinder film more yeah. than a, a 70s sexploitation vampire flick. It's interesting you say Fassbinder, actually, because mm. I brought up the connection between that and the bitter tears of Petra mm, Yes. Because, yeah, that's, uh, and, and Delphine Seyrig went on to play Petra on the stage, I found out, uh, in the late 70s next to Angela Pleasance, who was in Symptoms, which is just like, can you just imagine seeing that on the stage? That would have just been, like, the <laughs> best thing ever. <laughs> just mind blown. You mentioned, quite interestingly, and there's quite a lot of uh, vampire fl- films in the 70s. We're going to be talking about a whole bunch of them in this podcast as well. But where does Daughters of Darkness sit within that canon of 70s vampire films? And especially kind of the that little trend of erotic vampire films that was happening around that yeah. time. Let's see. So... You, the, the whole the whole slew of these films really started a, a main John Roland was slightly before but he was never commercially successful mm. Roland but it mainly came off the back of Hammers the Vampire Lovers which was an adaptation of Sheridan the Fanu's Carmina which also the Bed Spatter Bride is and it seemed to open the door and I've, I seem to write about this subject over and over, but it's something that never ceases to fascinate me. When the vampire first came to cinema, like, um, I mean, there are, there are exceptions. Carl Dreyer's Vampire is a sort of weird, weird adaptation of Carmina. It's nothing really like Lefanu's novella, but you've got that. You've got... Dracula's Daughter, which is Universal's follow-up to their Dracula, which is slightly different. But few and far between when it comes to actual adaptations of Carmela itself or female vampires. So for the like the first six decades, there's, there's hardly anything. In 1960s, we get 
Roger Vadim's Blood and Roses, which is, I think, like a, a, a cosmic cousin to Daughters of Darkness. Harry Kummel said to me he wasn't influenced by it, but there are similarities. They're both fantastic films. They're both set in modern times. Um, there are a few similarities between the two. So you had that. You had Crypt of the Vampire in 1964. Jean Roland comes along at the end of the 60s with Rape of the Vampires, like his first one, which has a vampire queen. But relatively nothing to do with women. And when women do turn into vampires, and I love these films, so this isn't like a criticism, it's just a thing. Uh, they're like brainwashed minions, or they're always suffering, or they're always like, oh, you know, fainting, or lying on a bed covered in garlic, or, you know, <laughs> like yeah, they're either thing. <laughs> they're either the, the brides of Dracula who are completely subsumed to his will, yeah, or they're the, the victims, they're the, the things Absolutely. that the vampire wants to eat. And the Vampire Lovers comes along and changes that because in that you have Ingrid Pitt is for the like one of the first times. I mean, it's happened in Blood and Roses, obviously, in Crypt of the Vampire. It's happened with Roland, but not in the mainstream. So you have a female as a sexual predator. And Ingrid Pitt always said, you know, you don't get recognized playing these maidens. You have to be the sexual predator to be remembered. So she she started that trend. But after that, you had so many films that came out of that that wanted to adapt to Carmida. And they all seemed to come out between 1970, 1971, 1972. You, you <laughs> basically had this like train, mm. which is like my favorite period. So many films to come out of that. The Blood Spattered Bride, The Velvet mm. Vampire, Let's Care Jessica to Death, Vampire as Lesbos. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, it's just like so many of these films. But Kummel's is different in that one, it adapts the Bathory myth, mm -hmm. which so few filmmakers will go near that. There are a few. There's Countess Dracula. But mm -hmm. in Countess Dracula, Ingrid Pitt, again, who's wonderful, she's she's like this insane sort of i don't know what to call her but she's just like she's so vain she wants to you know kill people and um so you got that but nothing nobody really wanted to touch bathory and i think because bathory outside of what actually happened you know the the story of bathory is such a myth now mm. It's become folklore in and of itself. Like the mm -hmm. court transcript, she never bathed in blood. Sorry to disappoint anyone. You know, she did kill a lot of servants, but she was a product of her time, which was cruel. And uh, nobody, like, like, even now, it's so transgressive when we think of the idea of a woman killing and just killing for the sake of it or killing because she enjoys it. It just seems so transgressive. And so... It stands out for that, I think, because in, uh, and as Bridget Cherry noted in an amazing essay that she wrote on the, on the film, which I quoted in my book, what Kummel did with Bathory was he turned her into a libertine. He turned her into like a Byronic anti-hero and a, a character that's, uh, you know, it's it's usually exclusively reserved for men. 
She's not just a sexual predator. She kills because she loves to kill. She jollies around Europe. She makes these little in-jokes with herself about her diet. She enjoys the chase. She, you know, she doesn't come in like Dracula and just bite someone. She, she gets into these people's lives and she plays with them. And so even though it does have the erotic elements through Andrea Rao's character, not Dauphine Serig because she was more mature. She came out of the art house circuit. She played the character in a completely different vein. To, sorry about the pun. <laughs> but it does have that. But what it doesn't have is the trappings of a lot of the other things where these women are driven by libido or madness or hysteria. They're almost kind of excused for what even the Carmina uh, Hammer one, the vampire lovers, which mm -hmm. I love. You know, it's it's made like a, a mad love story and, you know, Carmine is a slightly hysterical and, you know, it's it's seen as a curse. Whereas Bathory in Daughters of Darkness doesn't seem to feel cursed. She actually loves what she does. She <laughs> she actually yeah. loves Yeah, she's just like goes around these lovely hotels and picks up beautiful people and then she kills them or, you know, brings them into a crew. And she, yeah, she is just, just so a long-winded way to explain all that, but it's like a massive sort of history mm -hmm. attached to it. No, I think there's something really interesting in how you mention how she is presented. She is unlike almost any other female vampire that I've seen on screen. She slings in, she revels in her own power. She loves playing around with her prey. There is such a sense of superiority that kind of emanates from her. And she kind of also revels, I think, in playing around with people that recognize her, notably kind of the way that she um, teases the, the hotel clerk who saw yeah. her 40 years before she arrived. And she they both know what's happening, but it does it, it's never quite articulated and her kind of smirkiness around it and knowing just the fear that she's injecting in this poor man is she's a sadist, but she really enjoys her sadistic plays. And you're absolutely right. It's very rare to see women and especially Bathory and, and that legend that's kind of been elevated or, you know, Elevate is not the right word. It's kind of been transformed into lore in the same way as kind of Vlad the Impaler has been transformed into lore because of Dracula. Uh, and it's got very, very little relationship with the actual person that lived. It's just now this image of a, a female serial killer. And because of these this legend of her bathing in blood and, and killing for blood, she's now been transformed into a vampire. But it's a great origin story for a vampire, I think. Oh, absolutely. I think Parry found a magazine. He, he just saw it in a historical magazine and he thought that would be great. I will go out and I'm going to do a Bathory story. So he went to his producers who were Canadian and said to them, look, I want to make the Bathory story. And, you know, she's going to bathe in the blood of 800 virgins and, you know, it's going to be this opulent period. And they were just like, nope, <laughs> we can't afford that. And then he realised, you know, why don't I just move it to modern times? And he deliberately crafted Bathory and Alona on golden age cinema film stars. So Bathory is modelled on Marlena Dietrich and Alona is modelled on Louise Brooks. Because he said to me when I interviewed him, 
you know, the only thing that you could think of that is immortal in our time is the, the you know, the film icon. And so it becomes like this amazingly sort of cynical, wonderfully cynical, but also very stylish film. Like even the style of it is completely different to, you know, it, it, it was almost like we sort of get to the end of the 60s and gothic horror was falling out of favour. And um, but people still wanted to hold on to that. Like they weren't quite ready to let it go. And I guess if you're a filmmaker, it's more exciting to make like this massive sort of period set thing with bit. But, but, you know, they didn't want to let it go. And it was almost like someone flicked a switch. I think a lot of it was budgetary, though, like it was with Daughters of Darkness. Um, and said, hang on, vampires are immortal. They can, like, literally exist anywhere. Like, they can be here. Let's just do them here. <laughs> so, <laughs> so, you, so you suddenly then had, like, all these modern set vampires. Mm -hmm. But the only other ones who come close, really, to Bathory, to Daphne Sarig, for me, is Catherine Deneuve in The Hunger. Mm. And the women in Jean Roland's Fascination, which was 1979. But outside of that... There's um, there's relatively. I mean, Claudia in Interview the Vampire, maybe. Mm -hmm. I mean, she still has that whole cursed angle. But the whole sadistic thing is just. I think one of the reasons why I fell in love with it so much. It just seemed to me, to be so empowering in a way. Not that I want to go out killing a load of people, but, you know, if you're going to be... A, like, women always had to be, like, the secondary vampires, and that was a bit... That was a bit shitty. What do you make of the way that uh, Bathory is stylized in this film? And you mentioned that she's sort of visually almost inspired by Marlena Dietrich, and she's got this gorgeous, over-the-top, colourful, shiny, glorious wardrobe that she wears and moves and talks like a, like a movie star that's just on a weekend away. So what do you make of the way that her, that she's characterised and stylized? Oh, I love it. I think she is, I mean, I love Dauphine Seyrig anyway. I think she was, and it's just such a loss that she died so young because literally everything that she was in, she never gave anything less than like a fascinating performance. Have anyone seen Jeanne Dielman, yes. Chantal Ackerman's film? You know, three and a half hours of her like cleaning a bath, making casserole, but for some reason, because it's Dauphine Seyrig, you're just like sat there. You can't stop watching her. And I think she was so obsessive about the role that she apparently watched uh, Marlena Dietrich in Shanghai Express over and over again. And she's deliberately framed like that when she comes out of the car. And she, you know, the camera looks down, she's got that veiled face. Uh, the mannerisms, like you said, she does very big gestures in it, almost like a silver screen star, this sort of way mm -hmm. that she moves her arms. And all of that was like explicitly planned. The hesitation that she puts in the way she talks. I mean, I just think it's absolutely brilliant. I love Marlena Dietrich anyway, and I love that whole era, especially like the Paramount Glamour era. Mm. So it's like having the best of both wor worlds put into one thing, like vampire and Hollywood glamour, just kind of 
shunted into into one place mm. and i again i can't think of anyone else who's really done that you mentioned chantal ackerman's john dillman and it's it's kind of considered one of the epitome films uh, one of the key films of feminist cinema and obviously of ackerman cinema and delphine seyrig as herself kind of was a staunch and very open feminist in her lifetime as well and what do you think of the way that Countess Bathory relates to other women in the film as opposed to uh, the men, mostly Stefan? Did the gender politics in this are really interesting? They, um, God, this is a complicated one. So <laughs> <laughs> because when I wrote about the film, I wrote about it in different ways as like as the 70s vampire film and and as a you know fantastic film and i wrote about it also as kind of like a fairy tale because it is almost like a riff on the blue beard thing um where you have this young woman valerie played by the wonderful danielle we who's just fabulous and she comes into this marriage and she doesn't realize that she's married to this awful sadist who's got this hidden past um and as she starts to uh, become sort of she starts to ask more questions and she finds things out she she he her husband becomes more abusive and so you have in that Bathory who almost become like Bathory has her own sort of narcissism uh, to deal with but she also becomes the savior of of Danielle in a way in the way she sort of sticks herself in the middle of this marriage and and you know cause she really doesn't like stefan she uses him to start with i think because she can see he's the easiest to get to mm-hmm. you know he's a man of simple taste he likes sadism so she just impresses him with a you know <laughs> a little sort of ditty on some of her greatest hits but <laughs> valerie is like she's more reluctant to get involved so she play she take, comes in different guises as the mother as the lover she tries all these different tacks to get to her and it's really interesting like because harry kummel is in no way shape or form a feminist and he is like you know we've had conversations about this and he, he's a very outspoken man i do i've interviewed him twice now he's he's a prickly and wonderful and very opinionated a lot of the gender stuff came from Delphine Seyrig, mm-hmm. who, like you said, was very involved in, in feminist politics at the time. I think this came out just after they had the big, uh, I don't know what to call it, like a treaties or whatever that a lot of French uh, women had signed in support of abortion. Oh, yeah. It was like a a, um, a manifesto where women yeah. who had had illegal abortions signed, um, so like well-known well-known women were basically admitting to having seeked out illegal abortions and she she was one of the people who signed it yeah and she was just very outspoken so Mm. i think a lot of the there are feminist aspects in there they might not leap out as Mm. feminist um but the things that it says about marriage like you know marriage in this film is not like the blood spattered bride is not a not a good thing Mm. it's not a safe haven like normally in the hammer it's the wife and the husband together and they're good and then you've got 
no this this marriage is corrupt and this guy is abusive so it says some like really interesting things about that and about Bathory's role in that in in the way that she gets she kind of gets Danielle away from that situation although it ends up like out of the frying pan into the fire (laughs) (laughs) um there's also some interesting class stuff as well though because she she is an aristocrat and she Mm -hmm. acts like one she feels entitled to meddle in people's lives like this because she just feels entitled she feels like you said superior to everybody else Mm. and for a woman to show that sort of superiority you know, women shouldn't be superior. Like, even if they're really rich, they should never act more superior than men. Hmm. And yet, there you have Dauphine Serig as Bathory sort of, you know, defiantly being superior over everybody. You know, the concierge, hmm. Stefan. Hmm. They're just ridiculous little men to her that are just, you know, she swats them away like flies. I love how they get rid of the... My, you said I could spoil it. The, the police detective oh, yeah. just runs him off his bike. It's just like, get out of my way. <laughs> <laughs> but you, it's interesting you bring it up because you can almost see that as well in the relationship she has with her quote-unquote secretary, with Alona. And when she's working Valerie into taking over Alona's place... It is still in a position of servitude to her. It's they're not. Yeah. She never really, even these young women who she's grooming, she's not really seeing them as equals, is she? No, because she feels entitled to do whatever she wants to do. And the thing with the loner is, you do get the whole vampirism is a curse through a loner. So it's got the best of both worlds because a loner isn't happy. <clears throat> And she doesn't like what she's doing. She keeps wanting to escape. And the thing with uh, Bathory is she just has this very suffocating sort of narcissism that she feels like she needs everybody to worship her. Mm. And so anyone that gets near her, like she's really claustrophobic. Once she gets her nails into people, she just won't let them go. And Alona, unfortunately, is one of those. Like she, she can't... Um, she can't let go of her. But then also those people, whether she's attracted to them or not, they're completely disposable to her. You know, when the time comes, as you see when Alona dies, it's like, you know, they've probably been together for God knows how long, but she just throws her in a, you know, in a ditch and doesn't look back because she's got Valerie now. Hmm. And what do you think about the actual vampiric elements of this i mean aside from bathroom you know being who she was uh and the the way that is presented it's not really giving us much in terms of the classic neck biting bloodletting or you know floating in through windows or garlic stuff that we usually get with with prior vampire films I think Harry Kummel defiantly goes against that. So there's no explanation for a start. You get no exposition scene where they tell you how to destroy the vampire at all. Um, You get no fangs. The violence in the film, which is minimal, is human. It's a human sort of... You do see a little bit of blood sucking, but it's not necessarily explicit. Instead... Kumal does things like 
he puts in these tiny little details like when Bathory has a compact mirror and you think you might not have seen a reflection. It's just a split thing. Mm. Or like I said, he, he adds in this moment of hesitation. You know, the concierge saying, you know, haven't I seen you? Mm-hmm. You know, instead of how it's so cleverly written, you know, instead of having like, you know, a lot of vampire films and again i absolutely love them but they have a certain formula where newcomer comes in someone at the inn explains the entire folklore Mm. to them and how to destroy the vampire then they meet the vampire and the vampires only you know only sort of reason to be there is to kill people they might fall in love with the odd person but generally they just they see people as food and that's as deep as it gets but Mm. in this you have like almost no tropes no formula instead Mm -hmm. what you have is all this psychology Mm. you know all this sort of like very deep psychology about the characters and um yeah, I just think it's so cleverly written. Considering they like wrote it in something ridiculous, like a few days, and just came up with this idea. You know, it was just going to be this sleazy vampire film, and then they start taking all the all the sort of usual stuff out of it. So you don't even know if you can kill Bathory in this world because nobody comes and says, "Get the garlic, get the cross." In fact, religion is never mentioned. You never see a church, you never see, you know, even this cop, he, he identifies it, but he doesn't offer up any sort of solution. No, they only mention sunlight, garlic, I think, but also running water, which is how poor Ilona gets killed when she accidentally falls on a razor, which all the, all the violence, like you mentioned, most of the violence in this film is either human or borderline accidental. But I wanted to move on to something you mentioned before, and it's kind of this, the grandiose, but also somewhat low budget decadence of it all. So, you know, they're in this old hotel in France and it's it's the off season, it's winter, so it's there's no one else there. But it's still shot like a beautiful, over the top, kind of gorgeous, everything is glittery. Everything is just, you know, with like over decorated to the top. And I wonder kind of what you make of the um, the setting of the film. You know, these very specific choices of this sumptuousness, but it's quite decadent. It's not really at its peak. The seaside at winter, this sort of derelict little hotel that they're staying at. Well, derelict is not the right word. It's quite a posh hotel, but it feels like it's not at it in not in its heyday yeah i mean i love the decadent aspects of it and it's another thing that i absolutely love in in literature and i don't think it crops up enough in films Mm. at all and again that's decadence is more of a european tradition but kumul really sort of went to town to make this like to make the locations I guess symbolic of of Bathory's lifestyle, you know this this old Europe, and she's a little bit tired, and you know she has this obvious. They love to talk about ennui 
in decadence and it <laughs> happens like this weird kind of boredom that's kind of spiritual mm. and you know you need to fill it with drugs or murder or you know something and so this place this hotel is like a, it signifies the feeling of this ennui but then like you said it's this beautiful absolutely beautiful huge hotel but within that somehow Kumal makes it an incredibly intimate film so even in a scene like in that lovely lounge where they sit with the weird green drinks mm-hmm. <laughs> um, which is like a huge room and it's all white like there's a lot of white in the film which kind of goes against the mm-hmm. gothic trappings the, the a lot of the interior design is very white it's like classic but it's like very bright mm-hmm. and you you know you see them in this room but it feels like really claustrophobic even though they're like in this huge room and it was actually two it was two different locations that they used they it was shot in ostend the grand hotel de thermis mm-hmm. was one of them in hotel astoria where they did the in they did some of the interiors and then they did the exterior on the beach at the hotel there's thermis and then seamlessly sort of there's actually if you get the blue underground disc of any release of this they've just done the new one but it's on the old one they actually do did uh, put on there this wonderful little um extra feature where harry kummel and the producer go around and they show they go back to the locations mm-hmm. and they talk about <laughs> how they shot everything which is like fascinating because it becomes seamless but he took things like the staircase in one hotel because that staircase seems mm-hmm. to, and he said like that he wanted that staircase to be like the pinnacle. You know, someone's always going up or coming down it, and it's like very grand. Uh, but at the same time, because it's empty and because they're on this beach and it's dark all the time and it's off season, it has this like. What's the word for it? Like you said, like a decadent sort of atmosphere that mm. is a little bit, it's it's a little bit rotten. It's a little bit decayed. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's amazing that he did this on this tiny budget mm-hmm. and, and basically just was quite fortunate with the locations that he used, but also mm-hmm. very clever about how he used them. Him and his cinematographer. Sticking on the cinematography, that one of the bits that I found very, just a nice touch is the, the transitions. So when he fades into red and it's this very particular tone of red that kind of matches her Bathory's dress, her outfits, the color of the blood that he uses, and instead of fading to black, it sticks on the red for a few beats before it lets us move on into the next scene. Oh, the use of color in this is amazing. Like the costumes, like I said, the the hotel with the white and the red and black accents. You've got that wonderful black bathroom in it where poor Ilona dies, unfortunately. <laughs> I was going to say, just go back to what you were saying about mm. that, actually. You know, they, they the running water thing, they're not, again, not explicit. Why is she so scared of the water? Because yeah. she's screaming when she goes under, mm-hmm. not to go off the point, but it just occurred to me, screaming when they put her under the water. Mm-hmm. But nothing happens to her. It's yeah. not like, you know, it's not like a AD yeah. 
1974, uh, 1972, where you have someone kind of actually burning because well, like nothing you're just like mm. no and then they just slip over because it's slippy in there <laughs> <laughs> it's almost this thing of like you like you were sort of mentioning at the beginning this kind of this hesitation of whether they're actual vampires or whether they're just murderers who think that they're vampires yeah and i think he leaves that you know, he leaves us in that hesitation as long as he can until the very end, um, which is something that Blood and Roses does as well, which is why I compared those two, mm-hmm. which I won't spoil that one because we're not talking about <laughs> it. But again, that's an, that's another very ambiguous film mm. by a French filmmaker. So it's like, you know, I think the the sort of British traditional gothic or the more... Uh, American stuff, we do tend to like to spell things out to audiences <laughs> <laughs> and kind of explain everything, which is why I love the Euro cult so much because it's always so vague and ambiguous a lot mm. of the time. You know, to go back to the use of color in this film, it's a lot of white, it's a lot of um, it's a lot of red. It's not a very dark film at all. Like it's short, it's shot in a really luminous way. I find it interesting that the way that Ilona and Bathory are dressed, there is kind of a very intense color palette. Oh, it's all intentional. Same with the, there's a lot of symbolism with flowers in the film as well. We see flowers at the beginning when we meet the newlyweds. We see flowers in Mother's Conservatory. I think they're orchids. Yeah, he uses things like flowers, color. Um, and if you see the new restoration of it, because the colour was completely redone by Kumal, and it just looks fucking incredible. You know, some of the lighting in, especially in the the carriage at the beginning, looks like mm-hmm. Suspiria or something. Mm-hmm. It's just like when I saw it, I was just like, whoa, because I'd seen the film so many times to write my book, and it was like seeing it complete, like a completely different version. Um, and the the whole conservatory thing with Mether, the colours and the fabric, just so bright. Um, and it was all completely intentional because Kumal's film, I haven't, a lot of his films are really difficult to find outside of Belgium, so I could be talking out of my ass. But the ones that you can see, the, the gothic ones that he made, Monshaw Howarden, and uh, De Graft Walker is a short film. Monshaw Howarden is feature length. They're black and white, so I, I'm not sure whether this was his first foray into colour. Uh, but a lot of the stuff that he made after that was very colourful. He was just very, very attracted to colour in film. And so everything, like literally everything has a meaning. He's like a very thoughtful guy. He doesn't just walk into things thinking, oh, you know, we'll have this and that. Um, incredibly thoughtful filmmakers so like you said you do have like the accent color of the red on the screen in the dress and then the the black of Alona's dress and they went everywhere to find that dress and it's like a very simple little black dress but it had to be the right one um they hired a lot of the designer gowns uh, just to make sure that they were right. That wonderful sequin dress that Dalphine mm. wears, she had to be sewn into that. It was like really no heavy. No way. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and, and it was just every little detail. When I spoke to Danielle Wime about the film, she didn't have a particularly good time on the film. 
Um, but she loves the film and she loved Dauphine and she loved John Carlin. Uh, but she arrived there. She'd done a couple of films before in Canada, in a native Canada, and then she gets to Europe, sort of first time in a film on her own in Europe. You know, she's very, very young, not particularly experienced. And um, and she found, like, Harry to be very difficult because he wasn't giving her a lot of guidance. She he, She said he was more like in his own bubble, so he was just so obsessed it's kind of like the Stanley Kubrick film of <laughs> school of filmmaking. <laughs> you know, he was more into making sure these little details were right and everything was right. And so there's nothing in that film that is accidental at all. They even went so far as to cover all the mirrors up in the hotel and make sure they were all closed off and just everything... Mm. Um, and they only had like four weeks to shoot this as well, but everything was like meticulously planned, which, you know, when you're dealing with the low budget stuff, especially especially the, the Eurocult stuff, but no, the American stuff as well, you generally don't see that level of obsession um, in detail because like budget doesn't allow for it for a start. But, but yeah, it's just incredible. Um, it was a shame that people don't look at Kamal's other work outside of it. I mean, Daughters of Darkness was the best thing he ever made, but things like Malpertwee mm-hmm. and the stuff that he made, even his like early films like Montreal Hawarden has got like a, it's got connections to Daughters of Darkness. It's about two women who travel around the countryside and they've got a dark secret. So, you know, no vampires in that one though. Um <laughs> But yeah, he was like, no, it's a shame like nobody kind of looks outside of that. Really, mm-hmm. they just, um, they just sort of look at Daughters of Dark and go, oh, that's really weird, and then and then they forget about him. I'd love to see more of his work like out there because mm-hmm. he did some really interesting stuff. We've kind of talked a lot about Bathory as a character, but very little about, um, about. Danielle, not sorry, not Danielle. That's the the actress about Valerie. So, what do you make of Valerie's journey throughout the film? I mean, she's wonderful, and I think a, a sort of innocence and mm. a vulnerability because it was a difficult shoot for her as well. Mm. Like you know, they're locked up in that hotel for four weeks with the sunlight cut out, and they're on top of each other, and you know, mm-hmm. so it was a, it was like really was like a baptism of fire for the actress uh, but I think her vulnerability and the fact that she's a little bit unsure of herself it, it comes through in the role but it works for that role um she is like the she is like Bluebeard's wife in a way in that she gets sort of lured in like the traditional gothic maiden but she does have this sort of inner strength as well when Stefan starts messing her around she's kind of like I'm out of here but she's not like a flake you know, mm-hmm. she's not this timid little mouse who looks to her husband to look after her. And, she, you know, she's quite opinionated and she does have boundaries. And obviously she's not a match for Bathory, mm. but the boundaries are there. She's suspicious of Bathory. She's suspicious of Stefan. Mm. You know, she's tenacious. Mm. She wants to get to the truth about Mother she uh she 
is quite clear about what she will and will, will put you know when they're talking about the sadism and everything she's like shut up she mm-hmm. won't you know so even in that even in that she is supposed to be like the weak quote weak character the kind of woman in peril she isn't entirely without agency i don't think and that is that's another really interesting thing about the film if you compare her character to someone like madeline smith in the vampire lovers who is she plays the girl that carmina the vampire falls for and she's like really innocent and sweet like sickly sweet and absolutely clueless you know that this woman's biting her on the tit and she's like oh what's going on here she's all like that <laughs> and you know just come and valerie isn't like that you know she has this sort of inner strength i think which is which is just like a wonderful thing she's not you know yeah she is a she is a fly in a in a in a spider web Mm-hmm. to a certain degree but she try she at least tries to sort of fight it before we move on to the blood spattered bride what do you make of the of the ending and of valerie sort of replacing bathory well this is a wonderful thing because it is like the ultimate consuming mother isn't it mm. and you know she acts bathory acts in in many ways to to uh to Valerie as a mother figure, mm-hmm. you know, advising her. And this was one of Daphne Sarig's things. Uh, she read the script and she said, actually, I'm going to play this all smiles. So she's not menacing. She's not aggressive. She, like you said, she has that smirk. I mean, mm. it's very sinister, but she's, you know, puts her arm around. She's very touchy. Yeah. She's like, you know. She's definitely menacing, just not in a kind of, you know, growling, animalistic way. Yeah. She's menacing in the sense of, I might have a blade up my sleeve and I might slice your neck open at yeah. any moment <laughs> while I'm softly touching your hair. Yeah, she's totally like that. She's just so... <laughs> So she goes to that mothering angle and it's like she wants, like you said, she's she's grooming Valerie, I mm. guess, to be the next Alona or to join her in Lona and Alona. We don't really know what her motive is. I think because she likes to have this sort of crowd of mm. secretaries or minions or whatever they are around her. But she acts like the mother in the situation. And the way she treats Alona is sort of like that as well. She's quite scolding mm. and mm-hmm. she... You know, she's quite controlling. But then you get this very ambiguous ending where she ends up on that spike. But then somehow she's reborn into Valerie's body, which is just like, you know, because it's Valerie, but you hear Daphne Serig's voice come out at the end. So it's like the, the consuming mother, you know, sort of eating her own child and then being reborn through that child which is just like whoa like what the the fuck did this come from (laughs) like how did you get (laughs) yeah like she's using her as a host to sort of continue on and it leaves you it sort of comes out of nowhere. There's mm. this few minutes at the end, and then it just leaves you with all these possibilities. Like, whoa, she'd been doing this for centuries, you know. <laughs> so have, have there been ever batteries, you know? Like, it's it just leaves you with this, like, so many questions, which mm. I love. Yeah, because the ending of her, the the shot of Bathory's body um, burning up on the after the the car accident, the way that I thought about it at the beginning was that Valerie had sort of 
organized the or engineered the car crash. So she effectively murdered Bathory and wanted to be rid of everyone who was trying to to contain her or control her, even if even this woman. But I, you're so. I mean, you're so right. It is her voice, and it is like a sort of re, rebirth, which makes yeah. it even weirder. It just comes out of nowhere, and you're just like, whoa, like, <laughs> and from, and it's like, you know, was this planned? Like, what what was going on? And then she's just repeating this cycle that she's obviously done with a with another couple and she, and i love that uh daniel we has got dalphine's costume on as well the yes wearing the <laughs> yeah. little coat little cape and everything um i think with harry though i don't know mm. whether you know that was what he was trying to say i think what he was probably trying to do was you know at the end of almost every well no sorry at the end of every hammer horror vampire film someone's staked or they're killed yes in, uh, you know someone the vampire and good and the good sort of goes on to rule the day mm. but in in this it's almost like he gives you that they the expected ending and then he just drops this other thing in to say no you know evil's going to carry on and he so he leaves it you know with i guess on a very cynical but wonderfully cynical note that mm. You know, good doesn't triumph over evil <laughs> at all. Evil is going to carry on. And that's another really transgressive thing about the film because mm. even in some of the most subversive vampire films, it's almost as if, you know, the law compels people like law as in L-O-R-E, compels filmmakers or storytellers to make sure that good will triumph at the mm. end. And there are so few where the monster or the vampire gets to escape. Mm. Like, so few examples yeah. of that. And this yep. is one of them. You know, normally, even if they've had loads of fun, they have to be punished by yeah. the end. Especially when we're talking about female monsters, because female transgression, female violence, female sadism, really, is, is must always be punished. Because, as you know, in the last season of the podcast, we were going through all these different versions of female monsters, and we didn't cover vampires that much because i knew this was coming up this is probably one of the very few films where the monster is allowed to get away with it and continue on their bloody path well the monster well not even the monsters women are always punished more harshly in film mm. if you look back to the kind of pre-code oh sorry not the pre-code but the haste code era films you know anything oh, to do yeah. with adultery or anything yeah you know, the woman, the lover, the mystery, the mistress will be the one who pays with suicide mm -hmm. or being run over, you know. Whereas the man, you know, he might lose his family, but then his wife comes back to him and, you know, he gets another chance for redemption. And, you know, the women were always like in the noir, the women are always like terribly punished. And um, I don't know, it's equal opportunities punishing, I think, in the vampire genre because Dracula met some nasty ends, especially in the Hammer ones. He got fell under ice, you know, <laughs> spiked with a, with a wheel off a chariot, you know, he got mm. some nasty ends. But you very rarely get to see the bad guy win. And, you know, as a kid growing up on vampire films... I was kind of scared of them to start with, but then I decided, actually, no, I'd like to be a vampire. This seems, <laughs> <laughs> seems to be great. 
Um, and was always disappointed when they got killed because it was mm. just like, hey, you know, that's not very good. Yeah. They're <laughs> gorgeous and they dress really well and they have a lot and of adventures. And they're usually rich. They yeah. know a lot about history. Travel a lot, stay in fancy hotels. <laughs> it seems like a great life. I know what the issue I'd, is. I totally sign up. Oh, 100%. <laughs> if, you know, if Countess Bathory showed up at my doorstep right now wearing that like glorious cape and that glorious red outfit, just, yeah, sign me up. Absolutely <laughs> not a doubt in my mind. <laughs> but um, let's move on to our, our second film that we're going to cover, The Blood Spattered Bride from 1972. that the woman in the portrait? How did she die? She didn't die. She was found spattered with blood, wearing a wedding gown, next to the body of her husband. She killed her husband on the wedding night. Why? It's because he tried to make her do unspeakable things. Look, only the birth date is given. They waited for two years before they decided to bury her, but they never managed to take the dagger away from her hand. of a powerful desire which instead of being accepted by us is rejected and repressed. Did you hide the dagger under the pillow? No. She's lying. There exists in the human female an undeniable aggressive tendency when she is eventually confronted with the loss of her virginity. Quiet. Don't move. I love you. I don't hate you. I think you like it when he hurts you. I don't love you. It is by no means uncommon in dreams to have thoughts of hatred and desires of revenge and death directed at the persons for whom in real life we feel the greatest affection. to him, slash his face, find his heart and cut it out. Yes. There exists in the human female an undeniable aggressive tendency when she is eventually confronted with the loss of her virginity, an event of supreme importance to her and which is for her desirable and abhorrent at the same time. Some modern specialists call this the Judith Complex.
You're Spanish, aren't you? I am indeed Spanish. Yes, you want your own. <laughs> yes, and I. It's a Vicente Aranda film, and this is not how I knew his work. <laughs> so. See, yeah, because he obviously went, and I love his later work. Mm. I absolutely love the dramas that he did and everything. I think yeah. he had really interesting things to say about women. Mm. But this one, one of his earliest films. The, um, and he did Fatima Morgana before this. Yes. But, um, you know, is basically his violent. So <laughs> me and Sam Deacon did a commentary for this for Mondo mm. Macabro. And, um, and my favourite, favourite review of that was the angry man on some blog who said he didn't want a Spanish political and history lesson. Uh, while this, watching this film, he just wanted to enjoy the tits. And it's like, <laughs> dude, it's a metaphor of Francoist Spain. <laughs> the only reason you're able to enjoy the Spanish tits, sir, is because the transition was happening. <laughs> and there was a thing called El Destape. And basically tits were everywhere in Spanish cinema from the 70s onwards. But oh, God. well, actually, this was pre-transition, yeah. <laughs> to be honest. Yeah, I mean, and this, I mean, obviously there were do, two different cuts. Um, mm. and Mondo sort of found a different ending to it. And, you know, which is always the thing. I love the Spanish horror films. Like, I absolutely love them. And I think the the we just don't see enough of them, like, on the home video market or in mm. the restaurant. I think often because the rights are all over the place and a lot of them have been cut to pieces. Yeah. Um. You know, because of the state having to, you know, the clothed and the unclothed versions mm. and they're having to find bits from here and there. And so you just don't see them. But Blood Spattered Bride to me is just such a such a special film outside of the political thing, which fascinates me. Mm. So where does this sit within Spanish horror? Well, again, it's like so different to like compared to the stuff that Paul Nashi was doing compared to the stuff that say Jess, well, Jess Franco wasn't making films in Spain at this point but mm. we'll say Jess Franco mm-hmm. compared to like the very very sort of classic stuff that you saw um, that was kind of transgressive and wild in this like weird earthy way which is mm. one of the things I love about the Spanish like Italian horror goes weird but s- the Spanish horror always goes like a little bit more up to 11 <laughs> with the concepts <laughs> And they tend to like, especially with the Paul Nash, you just throw all these different things. Oh. Like, he has like Bathory in a werewolf film, and we'll just throw in Dr. Jekyll, and let's get, you know. <laughs> I've never been prouder of my people. Oh, just so wonderful. But I, th- I think with Aranda, you know, it was coming from like a completely different position, like mm. Eloy de la Iglesias. Um, yes. You know, just using genre to talk about things that they just couldn't talk about Mm -hmm. and I think you can't remove that context when you look at a film like that or any I think all of the Spanish films need special consideration and one of the things that really kind of frustrates me is when you see People comparing the Spanish to the Italian stuff, or they're like, oh, yeah, this didn't have much nudity in it, or this wasn't. And it's like, have you any idea how difficult it was to even make these fucking films? Mm. Like, what they were dealing with. 
and you know how careful they are to be so as a piece like i i would it does mine the vein again another pun <laughs> of the whole kind of commercial lesbian vampire thing mm -hmm. uses carmina more directly this way but it is like an almost like an open feminist interpretation of carmina which i love but it's also a statement it also means something where you have simon andrew who mm -hmm. doesn't even have a name in it he's like the husband yep <laughs> Which which is quite a relief because it's usually the girls who are just, you know, oh, the girl, the woman, the wife. Yeah. <laughs> He's like, the husband, mm -hmm. you know, is basically like a standing for Francoism, like this cruel patriarchy. Mm. Um, and so I think if you if you look at it in that way, it doesn't really fit at all because it's totally on its own trip. It's like saying something completely different. It's extreme in parts, like the violence in it, especially the domestic violence is yeah. extreme. Um, I remember the first time I ever saw this, and it kind of starts out with Maribel Martin, who mm -hmm. plays the newly wed Susan. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, she just got married, and then all of a sudden you end up in this sort of weird rape or whatever it is with this kind of guy with a balaclava on raping her in a wedding dress and you're just like whoa like what the <laughs> which you don't um generally get in a lot of the other horror films mm -hmm. and the sadism in it it's not done in a kind of how do i phrase this like uh bathory sadism is entirely joyful mm -hmm. and gleeful but the sadism in Blood Spattered Bride, which is mainly Simon Andrew, um, and the way he treats his wife, is uncomfortable. It makes you feel uncomfortable watching it. It's not there, you know, for people to enjoy. It, it does, you know, it just makes you feel a bit icky and a bit like, who is this jerk, you know? Yeah, he's always trying to drag his um, Susan, his new bride, away and kind of... All of their the way that Aranda you explore sex within marriage in this film is really interesting because from the very start it's it's quite off putting in a sense that uh, you almost expect it to be a straight up exploitation film that's just gonna have a ton of gratuitous tits and a ton of uh sexual violence against women for titillation. But the violence in their marriage is quite intense on every single level and it goes so quickly between them kind of being newlyweds that are in love and and in lust to the husband just kind of basically dragging her around and trying to use her as a fuck doll yeah and it's it, you know i know it's sort of supposed to be franco like the franco estate the father the patriarchy but it also speaks a lot about you know women in the position of women in in spain mm. and you know which you know the franco estate was difficult on women they have absolutely no autonomy i don't know if i ever said to you i, I was married to a spaniard in oh, my no. early 20s is from seville but his mother uh was just telling me she came to stay with us quite a few times 
um, just telling me what life was like under Franco and how she couldn't go out and have a coffee on her own. Even when she was married, she couldn't have her own bank account. She had to be chaperoned. And just, you know, to me, it was just so eye-opening because when I grew up in the 70s, I thought of Spain as, you know, a lot of Brits went there on holiday and you kind of thought of Spain as this like cosmopolitan sort of holiday destination. But it really had these two different identities, one for outsiders and one for insiders. And inside of that, it was the women that suffered the most. And, um, you know, they had to hold their families together and they had, they were incredibly, you know, it's like my ex-mother-in-law was telling me how it was quite suitable for her husband to take a mistress, you know, and he went off and he had all these other kids and, you know, and she just had to be at home sort of having these children and not complaining about it. Mm. And I think the film also, I think Aranda as a filmmaker is always very sympathetic towards women anyway. Mm-hmm. And he tended to cast a lot of strong, empowered sort of women in his films. Um, and I'm not going to go as far as say he was... But I don't know. Some of his films, you know, the the characters, they sort of tend to go beyond, I think, what, you, what you'd expect. Yeah, and I think you're... He isn't really known as a as a horror filmmaker at all like I came to his work myself as kind of a, a, a prestige filmmaker he made a lot of period dramas he made a lot of adaptations of of um Spanish classic Spanish literature but he does gravitate towards strong and also very sexual women as in yeah. like sexually empowered um, you know, one of I think one of his most interesting films uh, from the early '90s is Amantes, with um, which I love that. Film. Oh, it's extraordinary, and like one of his breakout hits as well from the late uh, '90s. It's all about um, these these group of women in the Spanish Civil War who were, you know, anarchists and they were kind of fighting for the Republic. You know, the Spanish oh, Civil War. I was trying to think of the name of that because that's another one that really kind of sort of struck with me because yeah. it's, about, it's all about the the women mm. and just, you know, what they were and how they were part of the sort of anarchist movement. Yeah. Um I mean, he's he's just absolutely wonderful. His version of Carmen, I really enjoyed. Oh, it's really good. I really like that one. It's the one with um, Pat Vega, who, just yeah, is great. And so his, gorgeous. And his take on um, one of the queens of um, of Spanish history, so 15th century queen. Um, so he did a, a sort of a biopic. She was called Juana la Loca, which means like Juana the, the crazy woman. It was another one of his hit films. Again, a period film, again, a film that looks deep into the psychology of a woman and what what was actually happening behind this idea of her being a hysteric and, and crazy. Yeah, it's wonderful. Mm. I, think, I don't think I haven't seen all of his films, but I've seen most of them and I've been impressed with mm. every single one. He works so much with Victoria Abril, yeah. who I fucking love. I think as a filmmaker, when it came to gender especially, mm. and the roles of women, you know, he was so intuitive to that. And so, mm. you know, I see Blood Spatter Bride fits more into that overall vision than what other filmmakers were doing within the lesbian vampire picture. So how do you think he plays around with with the dynamic between Susan and Carmilla once she 
shows up in the film. Well, the Carmina character in it, like to go back to what I said about Daughters of Darkness when mm. I said it was like the, the blue beard thing. Yeah. Um, you have it played out here exactly the same way, but just more violent. And Carmina in this, or Carmina Mikala Karnstein, played by Alexandra Bastedo. But she comes into the scene and basically saves Susan. She is the vampire, but she's also the saviour. So again, we're talking about how vampires, you know, don't get away with things and they're punished and, you know, they're not generally on the side of good either. But in this, they are, you know, it's completely different. Mm. You know, as soon as Carmina turns up, she is the protector mm. for Susan. And mm -hmm. I think that's, I just think that's why it's so wonderful. You know, she saves her from this like horrible guy. And mm. he really, and all the time the husband is doing that typical gothic gaslighting where he keeps telling his wife, oh, you're just insane. We'll just get this doctor in to talk at you. <laughs> and, you know, oh yeah, she's just mad. You know, mm. they play on the whole like hysteria thing. But the Carmina character is like this, this, uh, you know, this source of strength, this mm. empowerment for Susan. And I just think it's absolutely beautiful. And she has this dream in the film where they where they basically butcher the shit out of Simon Andrew. Who I've seen him in interviews and he seems like such a sweet guy mm. and really happy, but in this <laughs> he's horrible. You just want him to get chopped up with an axe. <laughs> <laughs> and do you what do you think of the of the way that um of the way that Carmilla is presented in this. You mentioned the fact that she's kind of the protector, but there's also a relationship between her and the husband in that she's presented as one of his ancestors. So she's part of his family, really. Yeah, there's this weird kind of... I guess it's like they have to have the painting. They always mm. have to have the painting in the basement uh, when it comes to Carmilla's story. So they kind of put that in as he is like one of the Karnsteins... And, um, I mean, that storyline, in a way, it almost feels surplus to requirements. Because when she is introduced, she's sort of like a... Well, I love the way. And when we covered this on Daughters of Darkness, we just had this massive laughing fit about the way she's introduced. Because she's basically buried on the beach with her tits sticking out and a snorkel. Yeah. And... <laughs> just the most hilarious when they literally can we, can we just the practicalities of this make yeah, no fucking sense at all she buried herself to not die freeze to death because she was caught swimming in the middle of the night as you do and then she, literally they just they take away the sand they brush it off and you just see her eyes underneath the snorkels and her tits are <laughs> brilliant it's like i i can't think of a vampire being introduced in that way ever in anything anything is just the most insane thing and uh and and so she sort of presented to start with like the sex object oh look the sex object has mm. arrived and the way that simon and andrew sort of brushes the sand off her tits is, is kind of like Um, and she doesn't turn up for like ages. I've, yeah. That's the other weird thing about it. like it's a Carmina film, but she's not in it till like I don't know about half 
the way through, maybe. Mm. Um, and then she suddenly appears like this, um, like this dream character. She's just like this weird fantasy character that's just sort of plopped out of nowhere with a naked with a snorkel and comes into the family home. And um, it's so different, you know, because traditionally Carmina crashes her coach at the house of her victims. And then aunt says, oh, can you take in my niece? I need to get on. And she's injured, you know, and she gets into the family. And once she's in there, she undermines them. And she usually goes for the girl who she, you know, seduces. But it doesn't work like that in this. She sort of arrives completely naked. Mm. And then she get the dream thing actually is in is in um Lefani's novella in that uh Carmida has the power to the main way she communicates with her victims is through dreams. And you see a few films do that. The Velvet Vampire is one of them. Uh Let's Scare Jessica to Death kind of does it. Um but the way that's used in this isn't um like the 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 traditional Carmina, um, she is when she gets into people's dreams. That's how she drains them, and they often dream that they're being smothered by a panther or a cat. There's a cat in the room, um, but the Carmina in this, the dreams that she provokes, mm. are nothing to do with that. They're like kill your husband, kill him, kill him, <laughs> get his head on a spit roast and you know run away with me which is like <laughs> like totally of course different. you'd run away with a lady you found under the sand on the beach <laughs> of course and maribel martin's just so lovely in this because she's like the innocent type and you just really feel for her living with this guy like there's this one scene in there which i you know, it's really well done, but I find it particularly difficult where he just starts pulling her hair for no reason. He's just so sadistic. And so by the time Carmina comes, you want her to be saved because you just really feel for her and you just really feel for what she's having to go through, sort of stuck in this marriage with this guy that all like basically rapes her on her wedding night, forces himself on her, hurts her sort of is sadistic, brings this naked woman into the house, probably because he thinks he's going to get his end away. You know, tries to get her locked up in a mental asylum. <laughs> like, um, yeah, you just want, you want Carmina to save her, but traditionally Carmina's not there to save anyone. She's, she's a monster. I'm not sure what Aranda was saying, like who Carmina was in the whole kind of Francoist thing, though. You know, was she the anarchist? Like, who was she? <laughs> I don't... I don't know. I'm placing it very much kind of in that era of both pre and during transition where there's this whole generation of Spanish filmmakers working within genre and outside of genre uh, and then end up being one of them who are kind of just tapping into every ta everything that was taboo up until that point. And making use of the the new liberties or the new flexibility of what could be shown on screen and made to explore everything like literally everything that was just 
different from the realities that they had been forced to experience for over 40 years. Well, that whole time when they were just getting out of, like, you know, so many years of fascism, mm. of oppression, of, you know, just the weight of all that, the traditional Catholicism, and it's like for 10 years everyone went nuts. And I think I think that's one of the most exciting things about that era of mm. Spanish film. It's just like anything goes, anything goes. So like whatever we can get, we're, like, we're just going to explore everything. And you get this real feeling of like, you know, um, just this excitement of people, like you said, like going into taboo, exploring things that previously they've never been able to, to sort of talk about or express creatively. Mm. Um, you know, and Aranda, I think, was one of the most artful in that. You know, um, I think the film still confuses people though you know people that don't have the background and obviously if you're if you're determined not to listen to the uh historical <laughs> lesson <laughs> and you just want to look at the tits this isn't the film for you it just really it just really isn't i do find it interesting because when you were talking about kind of carmilla being maybe a savior of susan in some way what i found that kind of interestingly contradictory is the fact that they all all the women in this film end up dead at the hand of the husband and they're dispatched in such a violent way as well and what so the the ending and Carmilla doesn't really appear for a big chunk of the film but when she does things escalate really quickly so I was wondering kind of what you make of this the turn of the ending yeah i think it's cynical in that way because it was made in like what well, came out in 1972 so it was made like 71 mm -hmm. early 72 um you know before the transition so franco was still in power and i think you know it leaves on the like the ending to me has always felt like a tragedy you know, because Carmela and Susan, they're like Thalma and Louise, in a way. They're kind of like, she's like, kill your husband. You know, we'll go around, we'll kill all these stupid men. And, um, but at the end of the day, there's, you know, the, the guy, the husband, he just, he kills them and sort of mutilates their bodies. And it's almost like saying, you know, there's no point, there's no escape. It like leaves on this just very downbeat, um, you know, what could have been something very triumphant. But I think that's just Duranda expressing his frustration mm. about how powerful this husband is, you know, as this standing, I guess, for mm. the state. You know, how powerful that, that force is and, and you can't really fight about it. So I guess he has a bit of fun with it for a while and then you know but then it has to end so i find the ending really sad mm. <laughs> i do that and it's so violent and, and horrible the ending as well yeah and to start kind of wrapping up and to bring both of these films together um both this and daughters of darkness kind of feature the corruption slash empowerment of these two innocent young brides 
And so I was wondering kind of how do you think, because they were also made around around the same time in two very vastly different countries, but still with the legacy of fascist governments looming over both of these films. Um, how do you think these speak about female empowerment? And I ask that kind of, I, I'm quite allergic to that expression anyway, but we've we've talked about it in quite a bit in circles as we were talking about both of these films and i find it very interesting kind of how female vampires in these films are portrayed as saviors of these um not downtrodden but in a certain kind of oppressed oppressed yeah oppressed oppressed young women um you know the young women that have fallen for the dream of marriage and when they've get married they find out actually their husbands are violent and they're sadistic and it's not what they've been promised and they become disillusioned um i think both films speak in that way a lot about you know traditional marriage which when you think overall by the early 70s there was so much and i'm not saying you know I, I think Aranda was probably more on the side of women. Harold, Harry Kummel was just interested in making a unique story. But the actual, if you look at the, the just the, cult, the global culture at the time in the West, you know, he had the rise in the women's movement. People were starting to question tradition, traditional values. I think, you know, in that way, it's a Spanish film, Blood Spatter Bride is very, very forward thinking because, you know, it would take a little bit longer for Spain to be able to open up and start talking about these things. But it is, the, the both films are very critical of those institutions where, you know, if you think traditionally, um, it's like, you know, women were taught, you know, you need to get a husband. You know, this is the be all and end all of your life. You need to... As soon as you get to, you know, your late teens, early 20s, you need to get married and you need to have kids because this is your place. And both, and you know, and you're safe, you'll be protected with the husband and he'll provide for you. And, you know, this is the point of your life. And that was even more, you know, relevant in Spain in 1971, 1972. And both of these films openly criticise the marriage in mm. the home openly they show it as a sickness they show both husbands as controlling and dominating and as emotionally disturbed and sociopathic you know and both of the women are like you said like innocent but not necessarily downtrodden because they resist it Mm -hmm. and so i guess the central message of both films is one don't ever get married (laughs) No matter how good looking he is, just don't. <laughs> and if a beautiful older woman with a cape comes along, go with her. Yeah, go with her. You know, you'll get better clothes. You're not going to get picked on. <laughs> but but in seriousness, I think, you know, I use the word empowerment, but I don't, because I can't think of any other way to describe it. But there is something incredibly liberating about seeing women being and. Blood Spatter Bride is the same in the um, the Carmina character enjoys violently killing men. She absolutely mm-hmm. loves it. It's like her mission in life. Let's kill the men. She wants a disciple or a lover 
to come with it, like the Thelma and Louise thing, but it's like Thelma and Louise sort of, you know, um, you know, extreme gore edition or something. <laughs> come on, me, come with me on this magical mystery tour, and we'll slaughter the men. <laughs> Both of them love violence, and um, I think when you think about that, women. We're socialised, you know, women can be violent and we can lose our tempers and we can get angry about things. But even now in 2020, you know, if you are a woman and you get angry, you know, society doesn't necessarily tolerate that. We're always told to calm down and are we being a bit hysterical and have we taken something the wrong way? (coughs) Or if we're assertive or aggressive, we given these terms like a bitch or Mm -hmm. you know we're um, you know whereas those traits in a man are seen as you know positive you know aggressiveness is assertiveness and you know he's being the alpha and we can't be the alpha female though no such thing exists so when you see a woman in a genre film who is as sadistic as a man who is as violent as a man who doesn't need to be excused, who isn't punished, mm. um, in the case of Daughters of Darkness, who isn't mad. Um, she just, you know, does what she does because she enjoys power. Mm-hmm. Um, it kind of goes back to Dessard's Justine and Juliet with the Juliet mm. character. She, re- um, <clears throat> I keep quoting this recently. <laughs> I quoted it in an essay yesterday. But it's one of those things that, that keeps cropping up. When Angela Carter wrote her book, Sardian Woman, yeah. and the ideology of pornography, she talked about how the Juliet character uh, realised that she lived in this very violent, oppressive male word, world. And if she could um, become as sadistic and as violent as men, she could have power. Mm-hmm. Um and so you, when you see that in genre films, it does become empowering in a way. No, there are days when I feel kind of angry about things, but I'm not saying, you know, I'd see the violent women and I want to be violent. But it's like, um, it's like seeing a, a, lib- a truly liberated spirit in a way. Seeing a woman be able to play by the men's rules for a change. And in the case of Daughters of Darkness, winning at it, you know, nobody is a match for Bathory in that film. Absolutely nobody. Not the law, you know, the, you know, she's above everyone. And even with genre, you rarely see that. It's almost like the, the thing that they can't give us. You know, we get the rape revenge, which can be empowering in its way, but to to it's the violence always has to be justified. The woman has to endure some awful sexual violation to be justified mm. um, in order to be admired. Um, but yet we can get male serial killers in films, like say someone like Hannibal Lecter mm-hmm. or even, I don't know, Norman Bates, and we can admire them in some way or we can sympathise with them or understand them or see parts of ourselves in them. And that's cool because they're men. But if you get a woman doing it who isn't justified in some convoluted way, then it's just like, whoa, you know. what the f- <laughs> And I think we need films like this and we need more films like And I think we are seeing a few more films like this. But again, 
There's always seems to be some trite explanation in there as to why a woman's finally lost her mind or she's, you know, gone on some homicidal spree. Uh, it can't ever just be, oh, yeah, well, she just likes doing that. <laughs> <laughs> oh, God, I, I couldn't agree more. It's I spend way too much time thinking about the allowances that we give characters on screen and you know people in in men and, and women in real life are vastly different but if we just speak about the on-screen stuff and have her remember it you know when we see a even a fictional killer like Hannibal Lecter is a great example and he's one of my own favorite characters on in fiction oh he's wonderful he's incredible yeah, he's suave he's educated you know he just likes to eat people but that's yeah, exactly cool. but also he makes it bougie <laughs> he likes to yeah. eat people in a really bougie way <laughs> wear great suits while he murders people um but there is kind of the this desire to understand and i think it's part of the trend that we see a lot of of trying to over explain why villains become villains and usually there is some sort of trauma at the heart of it and i think with female villains and we see that even in disney films you know and stuff like maleficent and um the new cruella film that's coming up you know almost almost anything even the witches film there's always this need to explain something with trauma to justify uh, villainy, basically. There is no such thing as this idea of, like Bathory and Daughters of Darkness, of she's just evil because she really enjoys it. It's pure sadism. It's one of the reasons why I really love Nick Rogue's The Witches. It's because yeah, the Grand oh, High Witch has no reason film. to be evil. She just is. But she's great. She's fantastic. She's fabulous. She's so good. She hates children so much. She literally is ready to kill babies for lols. Yeah, it's, it is one of those things. It just plays into that whole kind of thing that's on every level of society mm. that kind of plants this message about how men should be and how women should be. And, you know, women women should never lose their tempers and they shouldn't be violent because it's not in us. Well, that's not true at all. Women are just as capable of losing their tempers. You know, so it's even in things like horror films like something as transgressive as a horror film can still sort of work on that level that oh well if a woman's going to be a vampire it's not because she wanted to be one it's because someone made you know she was made you know mm. which wouldn't be true in my case at all <laughs> <laughs> i'd be begging countess bathory yeah. <laughs> it's like can i please can i be your forever driver <laughs> even though i don't drive <laughs> Oh, um, Kat, thank you so much for no, your time and insight. You. Just kind of as a as a last one, and it feels almost irrelevant to ask you this because you've literally written a book about one of the films. But <laughs> would you recommend that contemporary horror fans seek these films out? Yeah, absolutely. I think you know we've seen more of this in recent years with films like Byzantium, for example, We Are the Night. I mentioned The Hunger, which is a great classic. You know, there seems to have been like a few films that are, are sort of registering, especially within indie horror, that, that kind of pick up where Daughters of Darkness left off. Um, and I think, you know, I mean, I've been saying, oh, we don't see enough of this, and but we are slowly starting to see a lot more uh, female-empowered genre film, genre film made by women as well, which is important. 
um, come into the fore. And so I think now is the time for people to seek out Daughters of Darkness. I think it's it's off. It's, it was a very popular. It's always been a very popular film, and um, Harry Kummel's told me that he made a lot of money commercially. But it's also been a deeply misunderstood film, um, and I think now now is that time because we have that context, we have that understanding, and things are starting to open up in genre. And so I I can't see that any contemporary horror fan would be disappointed in this film. The only thing I would say is if you are going to see it, try and see it on the new restoration because it's just, it's mind-blowing. Uh, just the, you know, you can see all the attention to detail, the colours have been corrected and everything. So, you know, try and see it in, in the best quality that you can. But, yeah, I think there's the audience for it now. I, I, I honestly do. And the blood spattered brain? Oh, definitely that as well. Especially if you want like a gory Thelma and Louise. <laughs> <laughs> I think with that one, if you've got the context for it as well, it makes it a lot easier to understand some mm -hmm. of the more interesting uh, story details, I should call them. When, when you get the metaphor, you're like, oh, yeah, I totally see what he's doing here. And this is great. <laughs> so, you know, I mean, we see a lot today about people fighting back against fascism and oppression and everything you know Aranda was doing that in the 70s doing it in his own way um and so yeah i think people will find a kindred spirit there amazing kat thank you so much for your insight and where can people find more of your work diabolikemagazine.com and can I you can find me on Patreon on Confession Cat Avengers Confessions of a Cine Slut where mm. I do uh, exclusive tra uh, trailer reels with commentaries where I put like you know an hour of trailers together and talk over them I do vlogs I do essays I do blogs I do a film club there's all different tiers so yeah people can come and find me on there That is all for this episode of Fanacos Podcast. You can find us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your shows. If you can, please do leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. You can find out more about what we do on the Fanacos.co.uk, subscribe to our newsletter, Bloody Women, and follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at the UK. You can also follow Kat on Twitter at Kat underscore Diabolique, and I am at Anna Be Demented. Thanks again for listening, and we'll be back with more vampire goodness next week. <laughs>